Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It's hard for me to pinpoint where and when my eating disorder began. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. He just couldn't sense that I was hopeless. You get to that point where you just you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast brought to you by Lockaway Self Storage and Podspot. I began rereading my diaries and actually it enabled me to grieve for the little girl that got horribly lost and I just wanted to take her hand and help her get get out of that terribly dark forest that she was lost in for so many years. You're enough, you're more than enough, and you will always be enough. My eating disorder started at seven. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge, and your daughter's not there. There is hope at endad.org.au. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I have the amazing Dr. Anita Johnson with me. Now, Anita is a psychologist, a storyteller, eating psychology pioneer and author of Eating in the Light of the Moon, How Women Can Transform Their Relationships with Food Through Myth, Metaphor and Storytelling, which has been published in six languages. She's also the co-creator of the Light of the Moon Cafe, an online interactive woman's circle, book club, or workbook for eating in the light of the moon. She has been working in the field of women's issues, eating difficulties, and body image distress for over 35 years, and is currently the clinical director of Ipono Hawaii, which has a residential treatment program in Maui, and outpatient eating disorder programs in Honolulu. And she is also the executive director of eating disorder programs for the Integrative Life Center in Nashville. Anita provides virtual individual consultations and conducts workshops around the world. She's best known for integrating metaphor and storytelling into her training as a clinical psychologist to explain the complex issues that underlie struggles with eating, exercise, and body image. Wow. Truly incredible. You've really done some amazing things in your life, haven't you? Well, I've, I've been around a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you're obviously very passionate about this space. Well, it, it's what I love. I mean, people have asked me, how can you do this for so long? First of all, I, I love the work. And second of all, I, I love the folks that I get to work with. So it's just my idea of a good time, actually. I completely agree with you on that when you really connect with the people that you're working with and mm. enjoy helping them to to rediscover a sense of freedom there is something really amazing about about working with them isn't it mm-hmm. Well and I I believe this with every fiber of my being those who struggle with disordered eating and get on the recovery path are the people the world has been waiting for. And, and the reason I say that is because typically someone who's struggling is very emotionally sensitive, very intuitive, and what comes with that is an incredible uh, capacity 
for empathy and compassion. And that's what the world is sorely in need of right now. So that's why it's such a pleasure for me because I, like I said, I've been doing this a long time. I get to see people like you, right? Who, who are making a huge difference in the world because of the capacity of your heart. So I just, um, it's an honor actually to do this work. It's such a beautiful, beautiful way to look at it. I love that. They, that people who are suffering are the ones that the world's been waiting for. I'm definitely mm-hmm. going to reference you and tell some of my <laughs> clients that because I know that will be super helpful for them. Firstly, look, I'd love you to give our listeners, I mean, obviously I've given a little bit of a brief introduction, but I'd love you to give our listeners a bit of an insight into who you are and all the incredible things that you do. Okay, who am I? <laughs> well, I'm originally from Guam. Uh, which is is um, close to where you are actually. It's just you just keep going north. Uh, and uh, then I lived in Hawaii for thirty years. M- m- my family is uh, indigenous from from the island of Guam, so I grew up with a lot of multicultural stories and storytelling. And so years later, when I was raising my daughters in Hawaii, um, I I started to see how they were going to a world of school, which is a Steiner school, I think you call them Steiner schools, yeah. where everything was being taught through story form. And, and at the same time, I had a private practice. I was working with folks with eating disorders. And I started realizing, oh, wait, here's a way to explain some very complex concepts uh, using storytelling. And so I began to incorporate that. And at the time, so this is way back in the 1980s. So to give you an idea of what we didn't know about eating disorders, people knew what anorexia was because Karen Carpenter had just died. Bulimia nervosa was just introduced into the DSM. Binge eating hadn't even been considered. And I was supervising a young psychology student who was doing her doctoral dissertation on the incidence of eating disorders in Hawaii. And every time we got together to talk about this, we said, gee, there's a lot of people struggling here. And after about the fifth time we said it, we, we said there, there should be a center here. And finally we looked at each other and we went, I guess we're it. <laughs> so it was one of those things you create it and they come. And they did, girls and women of all shapes, all sizes, all ethnicities, all different kinds of struggles. But for all of them, it was a struggle around body and food. And so that's when I just started getting curious. First of all, why is it females that are showing up? Second of all, why is these particular females? And third, why is the struggle around eating? And so what I decided to do is just listen as carefully as I could to their stories to see if I could find what's the common denominator here? What do they have in, have in common? Um, and what I discovered is they were very much like the child in the fairy tale, the emperor's new clothes. Where here in this story, you have this vain emperor. He doesn't care much about ruling his kingdom, right? He's just mostly interested in fine clothing and jewelry. And he had a reputation for this. And so a couple of corn otters came into town and they pretended to be tailors, but they said, oh, our clothing is so fine, only those fit for their station in life can even see it. And so this impressed the emperor. He commissioned a whole new wardrobe, 
And all the people who worked for the emperor carried on about the fabulous outfits. Of course, there was nothing there. They were cutting and stitching imaginary cloth. But finally, the con artists, they left town, and there's going to be a grand procession. And the emperor is wearing his new outfit. Of course, he's totally naked. But all the townspeople were ooing and eyeing about the fabulous clothing, except there was a child in the crowd who said in a very loud voice, but mommy, the emperor has no clothes on at all. And when this child spoke, it created a ripple throughout the crowd and everyone saw the emperor for the fool that he was. And what I was starting to see is that the girls and women who were struggling with disordered eating were like that child in the sense that they had an uncanny ability to perceive subtle realities. And what I mean by that is they could read between the lines. They could, they could perceive hypocrisy. They could sense that things were not okay, even if everyone around them said things were just fine. But when they spoke up like this child, um, things like, oh, but mommy, if daddy loves us, how come he never comes home or something like that? They, their lives weren't a fairy tale. So they were either ignored or maybe they were uh, ridiculed. They might have been rejected and in some instances abused. So what had to happen is they had to find some way to dim their light, to diminish this capacity to perceive these subtle realities because what a child wants, what all of us want more than anything else in the world is, is a sense of belonging and fitting in. So they had to dim their light um, and, and not so that they didn't perceive things that others couldn't see. And so that's when I started realizing, oh, okay. It's it's like nobody has taught them how to deal with this very sensitive nature. And so how the eating disorder comes into play is that um, let's imagine you're on a diet or maybe you're starving or same thing and you're driving down a road uh, that you've been down a hundred times before, but you're, you're starving or you're on a diet. What's going to get your attention? Right? Every Restaurant, every fast food place, it's going to be food, food, food. And all those other issues that have been troubling you, they fade into the background. And then you go, okay, all along I felt like there's something wrong with me. because that's the feeling. There must be something wrong with me. Uh, other people don't see what I see. Other people don't feel what I feel. There must be something wrong with me. Oh, I know what's wrong with me. It's my body. That's what's wrong with me. And then that becomes the red herring to distract you from the pain of all the other stuff that's going on. So <laughs> that's a long answer to a, a short question. Oh, look, I, I think it's amazing the power that, um, you know, storytelling and metaphors can have. I know in my own recovery, my mm -hmm. NLP therapist, mm -hmm. she used metaphors so much. And at mm -hmm. first I found it quite odd. And then I started mm -hmm. to realize that it was the metaphors that were actually getting through to my subconscious. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that was where mm -hmm. I was starting to create change. And it was, it was quite incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it helps you to think in terms of imagery and you, you actually are using a different part of your brain. So, so it's really more the, um, the right side of your brain. Where the left side of your brain, that's the side that likes to organize and count, count calories, you know, figure things out. And so, of course, it's going to defend its territory. So if you start with stories and imagery, 
you're moving into the right side of the brain and it can be received differently at a at, at a much deeper level it can affect the psyche um in terms of just the meaning or the emotional level and actually even the physical level so i started to find that if i was working with someone who was struggling and i would just speak in the language of metaphor which i happen to believe is the language of eating disorders you see, because if you think metaphorically, you can start to see that someone who's restricting their food, that's not the only thing they're restricting. They're restricting their emotions and they're restricting new experiences and, and they're um, restricting their sexuality and they're putting themselves on restriction if they make a mistake. And so there's this, this metaphoric restriction that gets played out with food. And someone who's struggling with binge eating, what you'll see is you're going to find the theme of scarcity everywhere. Um, it's not that there's not just not enough food, but there's not enough time, and there's not enough money, and there's not enough attention, and, or they feel like they're not enough. So, and then someone struggling with with bulimia, it's you can see the theme of taking in, taking on too much, too quickly, not being able to assimilate it, and having to get rid of it. And so they might do it with they might do it with School. They'll take on a whole bunch of classes, get overwhelmed, and drop out. Or they might fall in love with someone and, and madly in love as soon as they meet this person, and, and as soon as there's a difficulty, they end the relationship. Or they might take on a whole bunch of projects, uh, and then it gets to be too much, and they just drop them all. So you see this binge purge gets played out. And so once you understand that it's really, it gets our attention when it's around food because it can be dangerous and life-threatening. But there's a pattern, a metaphor that you can see that's getting expressed if you can look at it through a metaphoric lens. I see this all the time with my clients, <laughs> so I can completely, completely relate. What what led you to doing this work? Do you have your own lived experience? I should have, honestly. Um, I, I have the right personality. Right, I'm emotionally sensitive. I'm super intuitive, uh, but and and I've I've wondered about this for a long time because I did not have an eating disorder. But mind you, uh, and I was I I think it's because I grew up on the island of Guam in the 50s and 60s, and you know what? I didn't know anyone who dieted, and I thought I was making this up in my own mind. So I asked a friend of mine. We were best friends back then, and I said. Hey, do you remember? Did I, was there anyone that dieted? Your mom dieted? She goes, No, nobody dieted. So I think that's what's made all the difference for me is that I was, li- I, you know, it was just not a thing back then. Wow, isn't that fascinating? So, so what did lead you to doing this work? Well, it's always been um, cultural issues and women's issues. So, so I was always interested in ethnic identity. I did my doctoral dissertation on the ethnic identity of Chamorro women of Guam. Because I wanted to understand myself, I grew up in a multicultural household, and and so I was always curious about that. The the um, indigenous culture that I come from, until not too long ago, it was matrilineal, and I came from a very matriarchal uh, family, and so I was always interested in women's issues. And so when I started to work in that area, I realized, wow, this is one of the most pervasive struggles with eating and body is one of the most pervasive issues for women 
everywhere. And so that's when I got very intrigued with that. Yeah, it is. It is. It is intriguing in a way. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's fascinating to me still to this day, Mm. uh, the way in which, you know, our psyches protect us. Um, and we develop all kinds of adaptive mechanisms that end up being problems down the road. But it, it, you can really start to see, oh, it, it can make total sense when you see what, you know, what someone might be up against. And, and one of my favorite metaphors is my favorite metaphor because I get emails from people around the world that say this metaphor shifted things for me. So now it's my favorite. But I, with metaphors, you use your superpower, which is your imagination. And some people say, well, I don't have a good imagination. And I like to say, what do you think worry is, right? Worry is a bad use of a good imagination. So using your imagination, imagine you're on the banks of a raging river. It's pouring down rain. You slip, you fall in, and you're drowning. You're getting pulled down through the rapids. And along comes a big log and you grab on. And that log saves your life. It keeps your head above water when surely you would have drowned. And eventually, it carries you to a place where the water is calm. And from there, you you can see the riverbank, but you can't get there because you're holding so tightly to the log, there's no way you can swim to the shore. Now, as you can see here, the metaphor that I'm using is the log is the eating disorder that someone would grab onto when they're drowning in some very uh, strong emotional current. And, and the problem is that when you finally get to a place where you, the water is calm, um, you're still clutching that log for dear life. And so I, I'm bringing this idea that there's a function, a very important function for the eating disorder, and it would behoove you to find out what it is. But of course, going back to our metaphor, to make it more complicated, there's always somebody um, on the shore yelling, let go of the log, let go of the log. And you feel like an absolute idiot because you can't let go of the log. Well, the way I see it, letting go of that log may not be the very best thing to do initially. Because what happens if you let go of the log, start to swim to shore, get halfway there and realize, oh, shoot, you don't have the strength to make it. Well, that means you don't have the strength to make it back to the log either, and you're really sunk. So what do you do instead? Well, you let go of the log, and you try floating. And as soon as you start to sink, you grab back on. And then you let go of the log, and you try treading water. And when you get tired, you grab back on. And then you let go of the log, and you swim around it once, grab back on. Twice, grab back on. Ten times, a hundred times, two hundred times. Whatever it takes to have the strength and confidence to make it to shore, then you let go of the log. Because you see, you put it out of the job. So the idea that there are skills that a person needs, right? And, and again, if you're emotionally sensitive, highly intuitive, which most people who struggle are, there are certain skills you need for navigating through life. And most of us don't learn them in our families or we don't learn it in school. And so this idea that they're just so anyone can learn them. Um, uh, and once you've got those skills, there's no function for the eating disorder anymore in your life. It's, there's nothing for it to do. Put it out of a job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your book, Eating in the Light of the Moon, 
was first published mm-hmm. in 1996 and it still remains a bestseller. <laughs> um, it's consistently rated with five stars on Amazon. You must be so proud of yourself. Um, look, I'm sure many of our listeners will have read it, but for those who haven't, could you tell us a little bit about it? Why did you write it? What did you hope to achieve with it? Well, I have to say it wrote me. <laughs> um, I've never considered myself a writer. It was a joke in my family. If you got a letter from Anita, frame it, because that might be the only one you ever get. So it started off as um, I remember meeting with my clients and they would say, well, where can I read more about this? And I go, hmm, I don't, I hasn't been written. So it started off sort of like it's a little booklet for my clients. But then it just kept growing and growing and growing. Um, so it took me 10 years, all right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like I just sat down and wrote this book. So um, it was finished in 94, but I started that in 84. Um, and, and so, um, like I say, it wrote me. I, I started using stories to help my clients understand what was going on. And then realizing, all right, uh, there's stories from all over the world that speak to us and for us about the human condition that even though these are old stories, the struggle at the bottom of it all is the same. And the struggle is really, how can I be my authentic self and um, uh, be in relationships at the same time, right? I mean, that's really was really at the bottom of it all. Uh, and, and so finding stories that, that myths and fairy tales, they speak to that. How do you do that? How do you become who you're meant to be in this life? Wow, I love that, that it wrote you. I love that concept. Yeah, it wrote me. <laughs> yeah. and, and how amazing for it to take, you know, a 10-year stretch um, did you find that you looked back at some of what you wrote, say, in 84 and thought, right, like that needs a little bit of updating now considering we're 10 years down the track? Yeah, well, even now. So, you know, remember when this came out a long time ago, there was this idea, um, uh, and again, a lot of what I was learning was about my clients because there weren't treatment centers. There, weren't, you know, there wasn't a lot of research. But back then there was this idea that, and, and I, this is what I would rewrite in my book, is that I, I think I said something that, well, you can eat what you want following, you know, intuitive eating, which I think is still spot on. But I, I don't think I clarified as much as I would today how um, important it, the, the diversity is for bodies. And that, you know, I would be way, way more emphatic about how our culture um, have made fat uh, bodies a bad thing, and that has translated to fat being a bad thing, and and all of that. I think I would I would really highlight that, and I would even add um, some of the neuroscience about what we why we uh, why how this has happened, because our our, our brains the, the frontal lobe of our brains doesn't come fully on board until we're in our mid uh, mid twenties. So what that means is when we're little, um, we don't have all the faculties that we have as adults. And because of that, it affects the way we think. So when we're little, because we don't have full, full frontal lobes, the way we think is still something like this. Bad things happen. I feel bad. I must be bad. That's how it works. That's 
for all of us. Um, mommy and daddy got a divorce. I feel bad. It must be my fault. Right? That's the only way a little kid can think. You get older, you get you, your brain develops, and you go, oh, my gosh, there's a thousand and one reasons why mom and dad got a divorce, and none of them have anything to do with me. Right? You go back, you visit, revisit that story. But now, if you can imagine growing up in a fatphobic family, fatphobic culture, what happens to little kids because of the structure of their brain, it goes something like this. Bad things happen. I feel bad fat. I am bad fat. Because in our modern culture, fat is considered bad. And we get those messages everywhere. No fat, low fat, non-fat. Oh, I don't want to be fat. It's like, so they get linked in our brains. The good news is, the brain is plastic. You go in and you revisit that story and you can uncouple that link. But it, it helps to understand that that's how that happens in terms of neuroscience. So I would put that in there too. Mm, I think it's it, absolutely. And I think it's really powerful. I always say this to clients to know that you can change your brain, to know that you've got that cognitive yeah. flexibility. You can create neural pathways. You can Break out of yep. the rigidity of your current, I call it the eating disorder superhighway. That's that rigid thing you get on every single morning. Exactly. And, you know, um, to know that is is yeah. was one of the most powerful things. When I knew that and I knew that I wasn't going to have to have been told by so many professionals, you will have to think, this is how you will think for the rest of your life. You'll just have to learn how to manage it. Oh, and, you mm -hmm. know, to know that this is not how you mm -hmm. have to think was this revelation of, okay, well, then, yeah, I will give it. I'll give it a shot. Yeah. One of my favorite things I tell folks that are either at the Light of the Moon Cafe or um, my program uh, in Hawaii, I say, you're, you're changing your brain by repetitively choosing where you're going to place your attention. You're changing your brain. Metaphor brings an insight that happens so fast. You know, in, in like milliseconds, um, your anterior superior temporal gyrus shoots out a blast of gamma waves, which is the highest electrical frequency in the brain, and creates new neural pathways when you have an insight, when you go, aha, oh my gosh, I see this connection. So I, I like to tell them when this course is over or when you leave this facility, you are taking your brain with you. So, you know, it, it's really well worth Mm, you know, some of the stuff that feels repetitive or or digging a little deep to get an insight because then it's yours. It's your recovery. It, it's in your brain. So, yeah, I think that's such powerful information. Talk to me about what it was like to establish, you know, the center in Hawaii back in 1982. Well, yeah. So, so this is when I just, we created a center without walls is basically what it was. So when I was supervising this psychology intern, and then there was another woman who was a social worker, and she had had her own eating disorder recovery, but she had, had to figure it all out herself. So that's when we got together. We kept saying, there ought to be a center for this. This, this. There's a lot of people struggling. And so when we realized, okay, we're going to create this center. How are we going to do this? And so basically we met um, every every once a week to just try to figure out what's going on. And we had very different backgrounds. So, and then eventually we brought in a, a dietitian. And so for the longest time, um, that center was just a, a phone on my desk that people could call. And then we could, we could redirect and we worked out of our own offices. 
And then what happened is then I wrote Eating the Light of the Moon. And what was starting to happen back then was I was getting invited to come and speak. And I was having to, to leave Hawaii to speak at conferences. And, um, and so my husband at the time uh, said, look, Anita, we need to create um, a place for your clients to go when you're traveling. And so that was the very first eating disorder IOP in the country or even the world. So we went to the insurance companies and we said, listen, you're doing this for people with other addictions. We need this for people with eating disorders, but you're going to have to pay a little bit more because we have to hire, you know, qualified, trained people. And so we created an intensive outpatient program, which was IPONO. And that was 2000, the year 2000, I think. Yeah. And prior to that, I had started a, um, a program in the, um, there was a psychiatric hospital in Hawaii. So we created a eating disorder program there. Then what happened is uh, uh, years later, I was living in the mainland because it was easier for me to travel. And the opportunity to create a residential facility on Maui fell into my lap. And so I went, okay. And, and that interesting, at that time, I was going to Australia also doing a lot of speaking. And so it was like, okay, I guess I'm back in airplanes again. But we created um, the residential program on Maui. Um, we're in our eighth year now. So it was sort of like that. It was like I, wherever there was a need. I, I grew up with a grandmother. She's an amazing indigenous woman who, who she started like she, the first Girl Scouts, the first Red Cross. She led the underground resistance during World War II. And when I was little, she would say to me, Anita, we are not on this, on, we are not on this planet just to take up space. And what she meant by that is if there's a need, then and you notice there's a need, then it's your job to figure out how to how to fulfill it. And so I, I, I didn't realize that until, of course, much later. I'm looking back and I'm going, oh, I see why if I saw there was a problem, it was like, okay, well, how are we going to do this? What are we going to do? So when we created IPONO um, on Maui, it's a, it's a small eight-bed um residential facility, we thought initially it was to service the people in Hawaii, but we have people now from all over the world that come there. So that was kind of a surprise. It was like, oh, okay, there's people everywhere that are looking for this kind of help. Mm, as you say, build it and they will come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so for me, it's been sort of like following the breadcrumbs. If, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, I guess I'm going over here now. Tell, um, me, tell me more about what the programs that IPONO have to offer? Okay. So like I said, we're small. So we're eight beds. We're looking to expand now. But um, one of the important things for me when I was asked to create the program is it was important to me that there be a trauma track. Because what I was starting to see is that at the residential level, when someone needs that level of support, there's often some kind of trauma, whether it's you know, chronic or attachment. And so I said, I want a trauma track so that, you know, if, if that's what's needed. Um, and and we bring in um, like mindfulness because we're, we're oceanfront. So it's like, you know, getting into the forest, into the, the going to the beach um, in a therapeutic way, being, being connected with nature. Um, I run 
I run uh, one of the groups every week through Zoom, right? And so I, that's where I bring in the storytelling and the metaphor. Um, we do the standard, you know, um, CBT and, and you know, uh, those basic therapeutic models. But pretty much um, the idea is we're not just looking for symptom removal. We're looking to find you know, the, the causes. Now, now, that may not be totally accomplished during one stay, but the idea is that it's in it sort of like a weed. If you just cut it off at the top, given the right circumstances, there's a good chance it's coming back. But if you go down and clear the root, it's a done deal. So um, I believe total, complete recovery, recovered, is possible. And because I've been doing this for so long, I know thousands of people who've totally recovered. I know it's possible. But I also know it's sort of like a train. You can decide to get off at whatever station you want. But it's important to know if you wanna if you wanna go the distance, you can get off in a place where, you know, there is no that struggle doesn't exist any longer. Not that there's not other struggles, of course, this is life, but not the eating disorder. So um I I really like to set people up knowing that should they choose total complete recovery is possible but not by white knuckling it you have to get to you know those underlying issues and clear them and you can clear them we have, we're sophisticated enough you know there's enough body-based trauma treatment to get it out of your nervous system if that's there there's you know there's all kinds of mindfulness modalities that that are available now that when i first started weren't even around Yes, we're very, very lucky. There is such a, a vast um, depth and breadth of of resources and tools out there. And I always say to clients, it's about different things work for different people at different times during mm-hmm. recovery. And it's about getting a really wonderful tool belt um, of, of these resources that you can use and draw upon um, throughout your recovery, depending on what you need at any given point in time. Yeah. So that's why I started the Light of the Moon Cafe because that's um, it's so not the people a thera- that don't know about about that. Can you just explain that 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 the concept of the Light yeah. of the Moon Cafe? So it's based on eating the Light of the Moon, and we take a pretty much pretty much a cha- although there's new chapters I've written, but a chapter every week, and then there's women from around the world. And um, every day for eight weeks, there's some kind of activity. So it might be day one. Um, this week, we're reading chapter seven, Eden at the Moon. Then day two might be me, an audio of me telling the story. And then day three might be a poem about that concept. And then day four might be an audio of me telling a metaphor. And then day five might be questions story questions to see how it applies to your life. And then day six might be um, some drawing or writing activity. And then day seven, we have playlists of inspiring songs to listen to. And so each week has a topic and um, we have a forum. So everybody writes in the forum, but because it's all over the world, you can go to the forum at three o'clock in the morning to see what somebody wrote about that poem or whatever, if you like. And some people um, don't really, they're kind of shy, so they may not, you know, contribute anything. Other people, they love sharing what their insights are as they come up. And, and that's, you know, a, a, a 
too. We have uh, several live calls. And then I'm on the forum every day. I answer all the questions, respond to all the comments. And um, it's really fun. It's like, it's now I'm like, I'm in it. I'm like, this is so much fun to um, watch people shift and get to the, um, it's more for the underlying issues. So I encourage people to be in uh, therapy if that's what they're needing or be working with a dietitian. And then they'll get like a 20% discount for, you know, doing the work at that level. So it's, it's a combination of a woman's circle or maybe, because it is simply for women, um, or a book club because we use the book or a workbook because there's all kinds of activities that go deeper. And so uh, for me, it's the great joy of my life because I get to be a part of people discovering, oh, I never thought of it that way. And because of a comment somebody else made, right? When you're a therapist, you wish your other clients could hear what, what so-and-so had to say because it would be really helpful. Well, at the cafe, they get to. And so um, it's really it's really a lot of fun. Well, it's such a fabulous concept. So anybody around the world can access it. Now, how do they go about doing that? Okay. Just go to lightofthemooncafe.com. Fabulous. I know there will be lots of listeners out there today who will be very <laughs> intrigued by it and want to go and check it out. Yeah. Now, I also have some self-study courses. So for people that, you know, it's, the, first of all, they're less expensive if it's self-study. Um, and you can, they're available at any time. The other courses, you have to wait till it starts because we all move together through the course. And so I have one that shows you how to find them. It's cracking the hunger code where you find the metaphors of the foods that you're struggling with. And then one that's just coming, it's not up yet, but it should be any day now is on assertiveness. Cause I think that's the most critical recovery skill. So there's all kinds of different stuff there. Fantastic. Now, we both know that metaphors are an incredibly powerful tool in recovery. Is there one particular metaphor that you believe is, you know, if you could only share one with someone, what would it be? What do you feel is one that is just most transformative and helpful in in eating disorder recovery? So there's the log, which I think is really helpful to understand that the recovery process. But I think the one that's most helpful is to, to imagine two tanks. Tank A and tank B. Tank A is the tank you fill uh, when you're physically hungry and you fill it with food. Tank B is the tank you fill when you are emotionally or spiritually hungry and you fill it with things like attention, affection, appreciation, meditation, prayer, and so on. But what happens for most of us is we think there's only one tank. So before we know it, either tank A is full and overflowing, but we're still hungry, or we don't even want to get close to tank A because it seems like the bottomless pit. So what has to happen is you have to tease the two tanks apart. And the way you do that is through interceptive awareness, learning your hunger satiety signals, right? Learning how to read your body because it's your body that's going to tell you um, when you're hungry and 
when you're full. Once you learn how to um, uh, listen to those sensations and recognize them when they are whispers, not shouts, right? Not, you know, because a lot of people will say, well, what's the physical sensation that tells you you're hungry and where in your body do you feel it? And they'll go, oh my God, I, I get lightheaded, I diz I'm dizzy, you know, and it's like, no, that's not hunger, that's famished. And what's going to happen if you wait to eat till you're famished? You, you're going to eat everything you, you get your hands on, just like the rest of us, right? So finding those hunger and satiety signals is important. But then you get to this place where you know your hunger and satiety and you're reaching for the pizza and you check in, not a hunger signal in sight, but you still want to eat that pizza. Well, guess what? You've just tumbled down Alice in Wonderland's rabbit hole and landed smack dab in tank B. And in tank B, pizza's not pizza. Food isn't food. What is it? It's a concrete physical symbol of another kind of hunger that you're experiencing and maybe even don't know about. It's you landed smack dab in the world of metaphor. And so the foods are talking to you, but they're talking in code and you have to crack the code. Um, and the way you do it is sweet foods usually have to do with either feeling like there's not enough sweetness in your life or you're not sweet enough. Crunchy, salty foods typically have to do with unexpressed anger and frustration. Warm foods, soups and stews, uh, have to do with the craving for maybe emotional warmth. And, and this is whether you're restricting or, or, or craving. It can go either direction. Uh, spicy foods, either a fear of or a longing for excitement, stimulation, and change. And chocolate is... We know this from Valentine's Day, right? Love, romance, sensuality, sexuality. And so these foods are trying to tell you about other kinds of hungers. And so if any of your um, listeners want, they can download a PDF of this. Just go to lightofthemooncafe.com forward slash peel. Right? And there's also a, a quiz you can take. So if you, you want to play with this. So this metaphor is really powerful because basically what people start to see is, oh, there's meaning. There's, there's deep, often profound meaning to my struggle with food. It's not just something stupid or self-destructive that I'm doing. There's something way more going on. And the food will tell you once you learn how to crack that code. How fascinating. I love that. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Why is imagination such a valuable part of the recovery process? Well, that's how everything's created. So if you were to look around, and I'll invite your listeners to look around your room, there is nothing in that room that wasn't first imagined, right? You know, the chair you're sitting on. Somebody had to imagine that before it was created. So everything comes from imagination. And, and I mean, I can get into quantum physics because that really tells you all kinds of stuff about, and which I can get really excited about, is, is how we actually extrapolate our reality from our imagination. It's very powerful. And, and I think one of the reasons why I use stories and metaphor is that you know, when I tell these stories, 
you're creating the images in your own mind's eye with your imagination. So your vision of the emperor, of the story that I told earlier, is different from mine, which is different from anyone else's. And and so uh, Marion Woodman used to say, she used to say eating disorders are a failure of the imagination because it's important to use your imagination to imagine what recovery would look like because it's your recovery. Otherwise, you're going to end up with somebody else's recovery, which you don't want. You want your own. So, you know, using stories helps cultivate that faculty, which is really what you need as you imagine a life without an eating disorder. Yeah. I could, couldn't agree with you more. It was something that I feel I was quite closed off to when I started doing NLP and hypnotherapy, um, mm. probably because I was so so starved at that point. But mm. the more that I delved into it, the more that I was able to get that creativity and that um, imagination back and that really vivid uh, inner world. And it was quite incredible the way that it did come back I think once you once you start to reconnect with your soul self and your healthy self, um, it's it's still there, ready and and waiting for you to pick it back up again. Yeah, and actually, that's where the healing occurs. So, so when you're really getting down to the roots of of what's beneath the disordered eating, um, what you understand is that we have two very powerful drives, right? We have a drive for attachment which is, that's because we're not lizards, right? When we're born, we don't just hatch out of an egg and go on our way. No, we have to attach to our caregivers. And because we're mammals and we're humans, which means our childhood is a long time. So we really need that attachment drive. But there's also an equally powerful drive, and that's the drive for authenticity. That's the drive to connect to your true self, your soul self, to be who you are meant to be in this world and go where you're meant to go. But of course, when we're growing up, these drives come into conflict all the time. And guess which one wins? Attachment has to because we have to attach to our caregivers. And it, it happens in small ways and large ways. So for example, a little kid wants a cookie and, and mommy says, no, you can't have a cookie. We're having dinner in an hour. And little kid says, I want a cookie. I want a cookie. I want a cookie. And mommy says, if you don't stop that, you're not going to get any cookies at all. Okay. I don't want a cookie. So right there, little kid is figuring out, I have to be how mommy wants me to be, even though I really, really, really want that cookie. Um, because you have that drive is so strong. So the problem is that, um, whenever you, Choose attachment over authenticity, that disconnect from true self creates a pain. Now, this pattern of choosing attachment uh, over authenticity whenever there's a conflict, then you carry that with you into your adult life where really authenticity is more important here. And so um, what happens then is that pain grows and grows and grows, that disconnect from true self. And you will do anything eventually, anything to not feel that pain, whether you're reaching for drugs or an eating disorder or shopping or sex or alcohol or whatever, because that pain has grown so great. So recovery requires cultivating, strengthening, growing that connection to true self, 
because that's what's going to get rid of the eating disorder. Um, you know, as a therapist, I can't get rid of someone's eating disorder, but I can teach them skills that will strengthen their healthy soul self. And that's what's going to take care of it. Because it's like when you walk into a dark room, you don't try to push the darkness out of the room. You turn on a light. And then you get that light brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. And that takes care of the darkness. So, you know, I think, you know, really that learning how to connect and not abandon uh, your true self is, is what recovery looks like. Mm, I couldn't agree more. Now, you've said to me that one of the, the primary messages that you'd like to share about eating disorders is that there is this deep, often quite profound meaning to the struggle, but that the meaning is hidden. And then the task yeah. of recovery is to find what the disordered eating behaviors are doing for you, yeah. not just to you. So can you yeah. elaborate on this for, my, for our listeners? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things it does for us is it distracts us from feelings that for one reason or another, we don't know how to feel um, because it's too painful or too overwhelming or too scary. And so um, what it does is it will bring to your attention when there's something that's not okay. Uh, the problem is we assume that means, oh, we're not okay. There's something wrong with me. There's something fundamentally wrong with me. And so that's where things get messed up. People that, that struggle with disorders, they really have amazing perceptual abilities, but because often their self-esteem is low because they're disconnected from their true self, that it, when they, what they pick up on gets misinterpreted. And then sometimes there are people that are more than happy for you to have that misinterpretation. And they go, yeah, you're the problem. Yeah, there's something fundamentally wrong with you. Yeah, what's wrong with you? But, but it's really that you're picking up, oh, something's out of alignment here. Something's not right. Um, but it goes askew when you assume that there's something wrong with you. So, but once you start to, uh, you know, kind of peel that back, and start to realize, oh, wow, I have this capacity. Um, the metaphor I like to use is in Hawaii, the eel lives in a hole in the reef in the ocean. And the lobster makes its home at the mouth of this hole. Now, this is a fabulous arrangement for the um, eel because it has a lobster on its doorstep keeping an eye out for predators with one of its antenna. But it's way more complicated for the lobster because eels eat lobsters. So what that lobster has to do is have one antenna going out, scanning for predators. The other has to go in to keep an eye out on that eel. Well, what I found is that folks with disordered eating are like lopsided lobsters. They have this amazing, incredible, exquisite antenna. They can walk into a room, pick up on the vibe, know what people expect of them, and give that to them before they even know that that's what they want. They're that good. There are people that would die for that kind of intuition. But the problem is, is they have a lousy inner antenna. So what that means is, that means you're way better at picking up on and responding to the needs and feelings of others than you are at picking up on and responding to your own needs. And this creates a state of deprivation. It's like writing checks and not making deposits. So the, the recovery process is one of taking that outer antenna, that magnificent 
extraordinary outer antenna, put it on automatic pilot. It's going to save you the rest of your life because it has, it's what helps you fly beneath the radar and, and anticipate danger coming. And so it's marvelous. Now, take all of your energy and put it towards developing a stronger inner antenna so that you're tuning in. That's, we're back to interoceptive awareness, finding, reading your body signals, and also changing the questions you ask yourself. Instead of saying, what's he going to think if I say this? How is she going to react if I do this? What do they think about the way I'm handling the situation? Instead, you want to ask yourself, how do I feel about what he just said? What's my reaction to what he did? How do I feel about being here with these people at this point in time? Tuning in, tuning in, tuning in. And, and that's how, again, you're back to connecting with your authentic self. And now you're not a lopsided lobster any longer. You have both antenna going. I love that, the lopsided lobster. That is brilliant. <laughs> do, do you think it's necessary to discover the meaning behind behaviors in order to be able to recover? To a certain extent, yes, I do. Um, I, I, you know, like I said, you can get off that train wherever you want. There are some people that go, you know what, that's not my style. I'm not interested. Um, but I think it, it, typically there's usually some place in your life where you haven't yet fully developed the skills you need for being what I call a thin-skinned person in a thick-skinned world. So, so the, the meaning for some people doesn't have to be so deep. They Maybe they go, oh, I'm not good at setting boundaries. And when I, when I feel like my boundaries are being encroached, that's when I binge and purge, or that's when I restrict, or that's when I binge. And so it could be, you know, at that level of understanding and just like, I need this skill. I need to learn how to assert myself. I need to let people know respectfully, kindly, um, that this is not okay with me. So it may be, it may be that, but, but right there, there's meaning. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. In your many years of working in the eating disorder field, what is the most valuable thing you have learned? How important authenticity is. <laughs> that, you know, that we are all totally as unique as our fingerprints and that we all have come here with gifts and challenges. Um, but if you don't, if you don't face your faith and that's, all those things that happened to you that you didn't ask for in life. Okay, here's your parents. Here's your ethnicity. Here's your car accident. Here's your eating disorder. Then you don't get to live your destiny. And the destiny is what connects you to your authentic self. And so I think that, that's an important piece. And again, that brings me to where it, we're so unique. We have a unique constellation of gifts and challenges that if you don't face your faith, you can't live your destiny. And there will never be another Anita like me on the planet, never another Millie like you, never another, everyone. And so if you don't live your life, the world has lost something. And again, I'm back to this, people who struggle with disordered eating have an extraordinary gift to bring to the world. They sure do. They sure, mm -hmm. sure do. Mm -hmm. Finally, what words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those who are still in the midst of their eating disorder battle? 
I, I'd like to say there's hope. I have worked with people who have struggled 30, 40 years before they, they um, sought recovery. I have li- I've worked with people that have had severe, severe eating disorders, and I have seen them recover. So I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying it's absolutely worth it. I could not agree with you more. I always, always say that. One of the things I say is that full recovery is always possible, no matter how long or how hard you have struggled with your eating disorder for. There is always, always hope. I I have just loved talking to you and finding out more about what drives you and and understanding more about the work that you do. I think it is such, such important work. And I thank you so much for dedicating yourself so passionately for all these years to doing this because I know you will have transformed so many lives in the process and you will go on to continue to transform so many lives. And I really hope that one day when the world goes back to normal, shall we say, that we can possibly meet in person. Oh. I'm planning on it. I've been to Australia about four or five times already to do conferences. So I'm, I'm looking in my crystal ball and saying, yeah, I think that's a possibility. I would love to see you face to face. That'd be fantastic. That would be amazing. Well, thank you, Anita, so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast, brought to you by Lockaway Self Storage and Podspot. Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? 